Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Hi, my name's Chris Pearce. And I'm David Cunnington. Welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights, where we interview Dr. Scott Perry. Scott is a medical director of neurology, co-director of Jane and John Justin Neuroscience Centre, and medical director of the Genetic Epilepsy Clinic at Cook Children's Hospital. We wanted to interview Dr. Perry as he's been involved with starting an adult genetic epilepsy clinic to transition his paediatric patients into adult care. Dr. Perry is actively engaged with the genetic epilepsy community as well as being active on social media, and I'd encourage you to follow him on Twitter at the Notorious EEG. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Now, as an epileptologist at Cook Children's, what's your usual day or week look like? Oh, man, you know, every day is a little bit different for me, but um, my average week is one spent uh, in clinic. Um, Generally, I start bright and early uh, here around 730 in the morning. I see patients uh, throughout the day until the early afternoon. I see a variety of types of patients. So the majority of my clinic is is around epilepsy and typically more uh, medically intractable epilepsies and, and rare genetic epilepsies. I'm not in the clinic um, I spend usually a week or two per month uh, in our epilepsy monitoring unit uh, in the hospital, uh, rounding on patients uh, there as well. And then I have a few days worth of research scattered in there. It's nice to have that mix with both that clinical work as well as some research. Absolutely. Breaks it up. Yeah. As we understand that genetic epilepsies are going to be more commonly recognized, there's going to be a greater need for genetic epilepsy services How's your clinical service structured? So I started uh, our genetic epilepsy clinic here. Uh, It's now been about uh, three years, I guess. And uh, the way the clinic works is uh, we take referrals for patients who have uh, a known genetic epilepsy. So they've they've got a a history and genetic testing that uh, supports a a known diagnosis. Uh, But we also see people who have had testing done and maybe have gotten results of some unknown significance, which is very common. Uh, and, and we try to help them you know, figure out if the mutations and abnormalities found on the testing are truly the cause of their epilepsy or, or not. Uh, and then we also see patients who have, you know, have a story that seems like it could very well be consistent with a genetic epileptic encephalopathy, but maybe their testing is negative so that we can look at the, what testing has been done uh, and and try to make sure they've gotten all the testing that is necessary, and it's not you know maybe an abnormality wasn't missed because the wrong test was ordered. My clinic is myself uh, as the epileptologist, and I also do the clinic with a geneticist who helps with uh, that that side of the equation. Uh, we also have a clinic coordinator who uh, makes the arrangements as far as the initial visit, gets all the records together for us to review. We'll review those records prior to the appointment to make sure the patient seems appropriate and to make sure if there's any missing information that we want them to uh, get records for us, they can they can get that done. And once someone's seen in your service, do you maintain their care or would you then send them back to places in the community for ongoing care? If through our workup, they have a, uh, you know, we've, we've got a definite uh, epileptic encephalopathy of genetic cause. We'll continue to follow them. I'll continue to follow them. They don't necessarily see the geneticist going forward, but they continue to see me as their epileptologist. Uh, and then I'll, I'll refer them as necessary to other subspecialists if, if they need, you know, other things like uh, GI or pulmonary, et cetera, within, within our system. There are some patients that if we have kind of completed the workup, uh, we've not found any clear genetic cause, 
uh, that I may send them back to their epileptologist if they, they don't necessarily need my services at that point. And then I do see some patients, you know, that come from considerable distances just for, you know, an opinion. Um, and because it's such a distance for them to travel, uh, those people may return to their, um, their referring neurologist. And I'll just work with that neurologist at a distance and they can come visit me as they need to. And you've been running your clinic for three years now. What have you learned along the way? So what tips could you give clinicians who may be trying to set up a genetic epilepsy service? What I've learned along the way is that every day something's new. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that, that was one of the big reasons for setting up the genetic epilepsy clinic, because with the, the rate at which our understanding of epilepsy and the genetic causes is changing. I mean, basically every day you get a new journal with, you know, new descriptions, new genes. It's really, it's really difficult to keep up with. And so we started the clinic because we thought, you know, having one point person who had an interest in it, who wanted to stay up on that literature would probably be the best way um, to get the best outcomes. Uh, And so, you know, I think I think that's that's my advice to anybody thinking about starting it is that you, you've got to you got to stay up on it. You, you need to be involved as best you can with the, the parent organizations because, you know, the advocacy organizations uh, for these disorders are some of the best places, resource places for resources and information because they, they stay up on all of the research, uh, new trials, new drugs, et cetera. And so you have kind of have to work work as a team uh, with them to, to get the best uh, the best treatment outcomes. You've also set up an adult genetic epilepsy clinic. What was your impetus for doing that? Yeah, the impetus for that is that I didn't have anybody who could take care of my patients when they became adults. What's been great to see over the years of, of taking care of, uh, of epilepsy and specifically the genetic epilepsies is, is how much the outcomes have changed. I mean, we, we're, we're getting better treatments uh, for these disorders. Uh, we're diagnosing them much earlier in life. And as a result, you've got better outcomes, uh, not only from a seizure standpoint, but from a cognitive and developmental standpoint. And so what were very severe disorders in the past uh, where these children may not live to be adults, they are adults now. But the difference is, is that the change in the movement towards kind of genetic testing to make diagnosis has really been focused in the pediatric world. And as a result, adult providers really haven't had an opportunity to either see patients with these disorders or know that they're seeing patients with these disorders because they're not doing the genetic testing. And so as a result, you got kind of a a knowledge gap there. And so, you know, when I first started to try to find people to send my patients to, I couldn't find providers that I thought were knowledgeable enough about the disorders to continue giving the same level of care that they were receiving, you know, here in my institution. Uh, And so we ultimately decided the best approach was to really hire our own adult epileptologist and and basically work with them in the clinic and essentially train them to become comfortable with these disorders over over time uh, so that they could then take the patients uh, going forward. And not only the clinical care that's missing, part of what's missing is understanding what do adults with genetic epilepsy actually look like. Exactly. There's these natural history studies beginning only in the pediatric space, let alone alone even mapping out what someone looked like at the age of 25 or 30 or 50. Absolutely. So that's something that uh, we'll learn over time. Yeah. I mean, because there there can be things, you know, just like there are certain comorbid conditions that are unique to the different genetic epilepsies in childhood, there may be 
particular comorbidities that are unique in uh, at an adult age as well. And so understanding what those are so that you can have anticipatory guidance and, and be looking for those things and then know how to address them when they happen uh, is very important. And, and it's not that there aren't adults with these disorders. It's that there are adults that don't know they have these disorders. There was a recent study that um, looked at uh, gene panels in adults and found that, you know, they found a genetic reason for the uh, epilepsy in these adults in about 25 to 25% to a third of the patients, which is very similar to the pediatric world. So, you know, the adults are out there. They just don't know they have the disorders. Right. And the clinical picture may look quite different to the pediatric picture. So it's not as easy to recognize necessarily. Exactly. And as an adult provider, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm at an advantage as a pediatric provider because when I see a patient, I don't have, you know, 30, 40 years worth of history to acquire. Uh, and so I can usually get the story from birth to the present and really see that pattern that might suggest that you have, for instance, Dravet syndrome, right? But as an adult provider, that often can get lost um, because once you've had 35, 40 years worth of contractible epilepsy, picking out the the fine details of the story to say, man, this sounds like it might be a genetic epilepsy is much more difficult to do. And what have you learned since you've start, started your adult genetic epilepsy clinic? Uh, I think what I've, what I've learned most is that um, there's going to be more to this than just teaching my adult colleague the ins and outs of these disorders. And what I mean by that is, is it's become evident that it's not just about preparing the adult epileptologist to care for it, but it's preparing the entire adult system to take care of these patients. Just some examples of, you know, recently we've seen a few uh, adults that uh, we needed to get video EG monitoring on to kind of characterize their current seizures. And the hospital is just simply not prepared to take care of a person with, you know, basically intellectual disabilities, cognitive disabilities um, that, you know, may, may not handle getting an EEG done very well. You know, here in the pediatric hospital, we've got child life, we've got things to occupy the patient and so that we can get the EEG done uh, without creating too much of a fuss. But in the adult world, they're used to just putting the EEG on and, and doing the study, you know, so they're not prepared to deal with the special population. So, so those are the kinds of things we've been working on is kind of getting them getting them ready for, for taking care of, of these young adults. And it's not specific to genetic epilepsy. You know, I, I'm an adult, no. adult physician and work in that space. And I realize how little training I had in managing people with intellectual disability or genetic disorders and the adult system just is so not set up for that managing that sort of caseload exactly yeah it's 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 a different it's a different different approach uh you need a completely different approach a certain level of patience uh, a certain level of ingenuity to figure out how to get things done the best way possible for the patient there are things you've learned in your adult genetic epilepsy clinic that you've then brought back to your pediatric clinics um, so, so far, honestly, the population um, is, is pretty scattered and, and small for each kind of individual condition. So nothing really has jumped out at me yet that I've been able uh, to bring, bring back um, to the pediatric half of it, other than just, you know, as I said, kind of the struggles of, of being an adult with these conditions, not really having all the opportunities that they had in the, in the pediatric world. I mean, certainly some, some things I've, I've learned from uh, you know, in, in the United States from a, a guardianship uh, perspective, a long-term care perspective in the adults that at least has um, better informed me to uh, get parents of these children ready to think about these things a little earlier on than probably I had done before. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
my son's 17 and we're going through this process of transitioning into adult care, but it all seems right. to come as a rush. You know, as parents, you're scrambling because yeah. life with a child with a genetic epilepsy is pretty busy. And all of a sudden he's 17 and yeah, there's there are right. guardianship issues when he turns 18 here in Australia and transitioning out of the very comfortable pediatric system that's designed for collaborative care. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, we know from a transition standpoint that around 13 or 14, we need to start talking about this and thinking about it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole nother, those recommendations are not exactly built around this population either. So, I mean, this is a whole nother game and you really have to really be thinking about it, not just from, as you said, the guardianship issues, which you do need to think about early, but really thinking about where is the care going to come from? Uh, and, and for many of these disorders, it's not just neurology. So, great if you found a neurologist or an epileptologist, but where are you going to get your GI doctor and your pulmonologist and your orthopedist? I mean, there's, there's so many things we have to think about well ahead of time. If you're thinking about then communicating with those other specialists in the adult world as your patients transition into that world, are there a couple of take-home messages you you know you want to convey to them? The main take-home message is is just that they are seeing these patients, you know. So when I first started out, you know, you try, I tried to get people interested or, or willing to see the patients, you know, they're like, Oh, I don't think I can handle that. Uh, or I, you know, I don't, I don't see that. But the fact is you do see it. You just don't know you see it. I, I told him, I was like, we can go about this two different ways. The first way is that I can just send them to you and eventually you will become comfortable with them because you'll have a bunch of them in your clinic or <laughs> we could take the route of teaming up together and, and trying to, you know, kind of be prepared for that. And so that, you know, as a, that's what I've done for the neurology half um, for the other specialists. Um, we're still kind of picking them out as, as we go and trying to, uh, get them, get them involved, really trying to get them, uh, involved more, uh, in the, in the advocacy groups too. You know, a lot of these groups will have meetings where they kind of discuss the latest stuff and, and it tends to be pediatric providers, but we're really trying to identify more adult providers and get them also there to get interested in it and to take that back home. And then just to tease you out with some of your clinical experience, are there particular things parents of a child with genetic epilepsy should be asking of their neurologist? Probably the most important thing a patient or family can ask their neurologist is, number one, just you know, how familiar are you with it? I mean, how many patients do you have with this particular syndrome? And you know, are you aware of the, the patient advocacy groups? I mean, I can't really underscore how important the patient advocacy groups are. Um, to keeping a person up to date. And, and, you know, a lot of people, because these conditions are so rare, you're going to have a neurologist or an epileptologist that probably doesn't have a lot of patients with this disorder. Um, so you just want to make sure you have one that's uh, at least uh, one willing to, to try to check in with that advocacy group every now and then see what's new and to listen to what you as the parent, uh, the caregiver, has learned about the condition because often you're the most knowledgeable about what's what's new and uh, you know new and exciting in, in the disorder. That really resonates. So I think, particularly in Australia, you know, we have lots of regional cities far from tertiary medical centres, and I really right. tell people you, you want someone who you can work with, who's willing to listen and go on the journey with you. As long yep. as, as long as you got that, you know, then you can work with them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you know, every, everybody can't travel you know, across the country to get to, you know, a clinic necessarily like mine for frequent uh, appointments, you know, so you always want to have somebody 
locally, I think, um, that is going to be uh, there to help you. But you just want to you know, make sure they're, they're a person that's uh, you know, truly, truly on the team, if you will. And then on the other side, are there things when you're seeing families of children with genetic epilepsy that may be a blind spot for them or something that they've missed that you find yourself constantly reminding people or, or pointing out to them? You know, I have to just remind people that um, pretty much all of these disorders are, are spectrum disorders. So, you know, social media is a very common place. Uh, and and these, these support advocacy groups I'll talk about are a common place to get information. But, but, you know, always keep in your mind that these disorders are a spectrum. So what you may see somebody else experiencing is not always necessarily what, what you're going to experience. Because, uh, you know, you see a lot of people that they read that and, you know, they'll, they'll rightfully get quite down from from the beginning. But I, I like to really suggest they focus the other way that, you know, there's, it's a wide spectrum of presentations. The uh, rate at which the treatments uh, are changing uh, and I suspect outcomes will in turn change uh, for the more favorable uh, is just it's very exciting. Uh, and And I think that there's a lot of positivity to be had um, for, for these disorders right now at, at the, in the directions we're going. Uh, and so you just try to, it's difficult because these are difficult epilepsies, but, you know, try not to focus just on all the bad pieces and understand there's a lot of good things going on. Great. Thanks very much for all your insights. Uh, you bet. So what were your take-home messages from Scott Perry's interview? Um, so there's a couple that really resonated with me. The whole interview it resonated with me because we have a child who's 17 who has been in the paediatric world and who will soon be transitioning into the adult world, which is very unknown and sort of a bit of a quagmire for us to work out what services are there and what we're going to have to sort of build ourselves. So it's really interesting to hear from him how he's transitioned his paediatric patients by building an adult genetic epilepsy clinic and why he did it and how he did it. And it seems like a really good model for others to follow. One of the other points that Scott made when he was talking about his paediatric genetic epilepsy clinic, he talked about those that had diagnosis. And so they came to his clinic with a clear path and a clear way in which he evaluated them before they came to the clinic, but then also when they were there and then the follow-up, whether he did that or other clinicians did it. The other point that he mentioned was that there were patients that clearly to a neurologist have a genetic background, but for some reason that clear diagnosis is not coming. So they get those patients who, who present with a genetic epilepsy type presentation and they work with those families to try and either get them a diagnosis or to um, find them the right help while that diagnosis is still being explored. So, yeah, I think that's really important. We've got at least a handful of families here that are stuck in that no man's land where neurologists are telling them that they've got a genetic epilepsy, but they're not willing to, well, not not willing, but are unable to help that family find a definitive diagnosis. And that's really, really hard and confusing for families and also difficult for doctors to not be able to give families an answer. Yeah, and it is one of the peculiarities of the US system, a bit different to Australia. People do travel a bit to get opinions in the US or to seek out expertise. Happens a bit in Australia, but a bit Less so. We'll often stick within our particular states and if the expertise isn't in that state, we may just sort of plod along, not getting the answers that we're after. 
Yeah, and there's some work being done um, in Australia. We're doing some work in DEEs and genetic epilepsy and trying to work out what the gaps are and what what is required uh, for families in terms of care. And then hopefully that will evolve into finding better processes, not only in our own states, but across Australia. Yeah, you've teased that out as part of that roundtable on genetic epilepsy that you organised, and I'll interview you about that in an upcoming episode. Fantastic. You can keep up to date with the latest in genetic epilepsy and developmental and epileptic encephalopathies by subscribing to this podcast, or you can get regular updates on SCN2A through SCN2A Australia's Facebook or Twitter at SCN2A Australia. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.